Join me in turning to Acts chapter 6. For the sake of our guests, we are, we are walking through this exciting series in the gospel of Acts or in the, the, the book of Acts and we are excited for what the Lord has for us, including uh, today. Uh, what we've seen is the start of the early church in this book of Acts, and, and God has moved in his power to bring, to bring power through the Holy Spirit to people who were without the Holy Spirit prior. And, and with the Holy Spirit living within them, we see people alive, fully alive as God intended them to be. And in our, in our text today, which is actually quite lengthy, so it's, it's so long that I'm going to break it up in a few different sections. Um, we're going to cover halfway through chapter 6 through all the way through the end. It's, it's all one kind of story, one unit together. And, uh, and so let me, let me talk to you, just share a few reflections of overview before we get into the specifics uh, in this section. So in the first part of chapter 6 in Acts, we saw that there was a problem. So, so again, God's Spirit comes in power in Acts chapter 2. The church is established and, and 2,000, 3,000 people, excuse me, are saved through Peter's sermon and, and people are sharing things together and they're selling things so that no one would have any particular need and, and the, the, the work of the Lord is establishing the church and this is such an exciting time. And yet there are challenges that emerge. Chapter 6 tells us that, that one of the challenges that emerged that were that some of the Greek-speaking Hebrews, the Hellenists, they were, they were being neglected. Some of these widows who, who had need, real need, they were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so this was a problem that was threatening the well-being of the church. Well, God, through his wisdom, um, set up seven men that the church chose seven men to to be useful in the daily distribution and what it says about those men is that they were filled with the holy spirit they were they were godly men they were set apart for that task one of those men his name was Stephen and it's noted for us that Stephen in particular was, was filled with the Holy Spirit and, and, and Stephen was a, a godly and a spiritual man. And what we're going to read about this morning is Stephen falls under these accusations. They're false accusations, but accusations nonetheless about saying that he was teaching against the temple and against God and against Moses and against the law. And these false accusations come and they come with force. And yet we'll see how, how Stephen responds to them. Even in his body, he is affected so much by the Holy Spirit. He, he, he responds in a certain way. And then he stands and he, and he addresses the crowd, those, those leaders of the Sanhedrin, the council and all those who are gathered around. He, he gives them an overview of Israel's history. And he ultimately, by the end of chapter seven, he becomes a martyr. In fact, Stephen becomes the first martyr for the faith in the new covenant church. The Greek word for witness is martyr. And so he was a witness unto the very point of death. You can be a martyr for anything. It's not necessarily Christian to be a martyr. Martyr simply means witness unto death. But he was the first Christian martyr in the new covenant age. And when we get to that point, I mean, it's, it's, this beautiful, I mean, there are stones that are crushing him, and so it's awful, but there's this beautiful thing that, that God is, is walking him through. He's helping him in that moment, and I look forward to, to, to walking through all of this with you. So let's read, let's start uh, Acts chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. As I read this morning, I remind us all that this is not the word of some mere man. This is the holy inspired uh, perfect word of God. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses 
and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Lord, we pray that as we walk through this text this morning, your, your holy word, your word that was preserved for us, we pray that you would help us to see Christ in these pages. Lord, we pray together that we would be built up in Christ and in Christ alone. And I pray that as a result of being in your word this morning by the influence of the Holy Spirit, we would be shaped and made into the image of Christ in greater fashion, having been in your word today. So help us, Lord, we pray. And everyone asks this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So what does this text tell us about Stephen? Well, not only was he one of the seven who was appointed to serve in the daily distribution, verse 5 tells us once again, he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He was full of faith and he was full of the Holy Spirit. This is the first recorded person, by the way, as well, in addition to the apostles, to perform signs and wonders. God was powerfully using this man. Verse 8 says he was full of grace and power. That's a fairly unusual combination, wouldn't you say? Uh, someone may be gracious, but typically people who are gracious aren't known as being overly powerful. And someone who is very powerful often may not be characterized by graciousness because they're powerful. He was filled with grace and power. He spoke with such wisdom that they could not withstand the wisdom, verse 10 says, and the spirit with which he was speaking. So when he, when he spoke, he was so moved and filled with the Holy Spirit that what came out of him was so wise, so true, so pure that they couldn't withstand. And so what do they do? Because they couldn't actually argue against him with logic, they decided what's the best next best way, and so they decided to make up lies about what he was saying. He was saying certain things. They were twisting them and using them in such a way so as to make him seem to be like a liar. Now, let me ask you, if you are seized by people and you are grabbed and hauled into a court with many officials around, would you have... If people are, are hurling not only insults but accusations against you that are false, how do you think you in that moment would respond? I don't know about you, but I would say I don't think my face in that moment would be the face of an angel. I know Julie thinks I have the face of an angel, but you know, beyond that, I don't know that anyone else would think that, and I don't think my spirit would be unruffled. I mean, this man is so walking with Christ, so filled with the Holy Spirit that his, his face looks like that of an angel. Reminds us, doesn't it, of the time when Moses who we'll hear about in a moment, when Moses was up on the mountain with God, on Mount Sinai, and God was giving him the tablets of the law, and, and Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And he said, oh, you know, Moses, you, you don't know what you're asking. You, you can't see my glory and live, so here's what I will do. I'll just, I'll just show the, the tiniest bit of, of my glory as I go by, the, the back and, and, and even at that, remember, Jesus or Moses saw, saw the glory of God just, just a teeny bit, and his face was so radiant that when he came down the mountain, people, they, they couldn't even really look at it. They had to put a veil over him. He was so bright. He was so filled with God. He had encountered God himself. And I wonder if that's something of what is happening here as Stephen's face, you know, accusations and, and being rushed into a court and all kinds of things are happening. He's experienced God and his face shone like that of an angel. So how does Stephen respond 
to these accusations. What does he do? Well, he begins his message, and we'll read it in a moment. He begins his message with an overview of Israel's history. He understood that the temple, in fact, the, the, you know, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish people, they loved the temple. They, they loved and cherished the temple. And in some ways you think that might be right and good, but in other ways they had gone farther, way farther than they ever had should with the temple because it was a work of their own hands. And as we'll see in the testimony that, that Stephen gives, they loved the work of their own hands. That's what happened in the desert. When Moses was up with the Lord, what were the people doing? They were, they were worshiping something that they had made with their own hands. And, and Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, is given wisdom by God to know how to give them a history. Not that they ultimately listened, but he painted for them a picture of how Israel had missed God. How Israel had so often resisted the Holy Spirit. And he walks them through. So Abraham and then Joseph and Moses, and then the tabernacle and the temple. So let's read together, uh, starting at verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child." And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and inflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation they serve, God said, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. Verse 8. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his deeds and words. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why, are you, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Verse 30. 
Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of fire in the bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge? This man God sent forth both as ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man, Moses, led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned them away and gave them over to the to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who had spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they possessed, dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? That was a lot. That was a lot for them to hear and that was a lot for you just now to hear. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to briefly walk through what I understand to be the reason that Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke in the way that he did. Why did he choose? Because he obviously selected certain points in Israel's history. Why did he choose what he chose? What was he communicating to the Sanhedrin? And in fact, what is God communicating to us by preserving it for us today? So let's start with Abraham. Abraham is mentioned in verses 2 through 8. These won't be long summarizations, but I hope they'll be helpful. Abraham. Why do we talk about Abraham? Because God appeared to Abraham outside of Israel. Now, let me again set the context. The context here is people who were proud of being Israelites. They, they, they were proud of their Jewish heritage, but in their pride, in their Jewish heritage, they had in their minds and in their hearts, they had confined God to Israel. They had confined him to Israel. They, they thought God isn't at work anywhere else. He is at work in us right here in our city, in our temple and in Israel. But God's not working. He's not doing other things. And in the Gentiles, remember that their disposition toward Gentiles was not one of love to reach out to them. They wanted to be separate from the Gentiles. They didn't want anything to do with Gentiles. And so Stephen purposely chooses to tell stories of God's work in Gentiles particularly beginning with Abraham. So God 
holy God went and, and spoke to Abram while he was outside of Israel. Yes, he called him and eventually got him to the place of Israel. But when God went and spoke and revealed himself to Abraham, it was outside of Israel while he was still in Mesopotamia, verse 2 tells us. That is not in Israel. It's not an Israelite location. So he, what he's saying is, listen, God is not limited to geography. You Jews, you Israelites, you think that everything is right here. No, God's always been at work in all kinds of places. In fact, he went and he was at work outside of Israel. Abraham, in fact, he, you know, they revere Abraham so much, but Abraham was never given a specific inheritance in all of Israel. He says he, he didn't even give him a foot's length in verse five. He did give him an inheritance and his offspring, but to Abraham, he didn't give him a, a foot of the land. And so Stephen is saying, listen, forget about the land. The land is not where it's at. It's with God himself. They had gotten so tied into the land. Like, hey, you know, we're the, we're the children of Abraham. What did Jesus say when they said, hey, we're the children of Abraham? He's like, you know what I can do? I can make these rocks cry out and praise me because you all have lost sight. And so this is an indictment on the leaders and on the people of Israel. Abraham was one, uh, the author of Hebrews records this for us. Abraham was looking for God's city, not an earthly one. It says this of Abraham, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So even he, and he's saying, listen, Abraham wasn't so tied to the land. Yes, it was God's promise, but, but they had twisted it around and they had missed the point of Abraham. Then he moves on to Joseph. What does he say about Joseph? Here's the summation. He tells the story of how uh, the patriarchs, meaning Joseph's brothers, they hated him and they sold him off into slavery and, and they wanted him gone. And so he was as good as dead to them, right? And so in essence, I'm, I'm drawing an illustration, uh, equating Joseph, in fact, in a manner of being like Jesus because he was sold off and as good as dead. And yet who was it? that God used to save them. It was Joseph. It was Joseph because as the famine was there, as it was going on, they heard about food down in Egypt. Their their land wasn't producing any. And so Joseph became a picture of the Redeemer Christ. He had been rejected by his own brethren, and yet God was with him. God was active in Egypt, helping Joseph and establishing Joseph such that Joseph now was arising to be, in a sense, a type of redeemer for them. He provided the food that they needed, otherwise they would have perished. So that's why he includes Joseph. And he notes that they rejected Joseph. He's building his argument. You stiff-necked people who get there at the end of the chapter. It's like, you always reject the Holy Spirit. You always look away from God and he's building his story. See, even Joseph was a type of redeemer, but you rejected him. He moves on to Moses and Moses gets the most airtime, probably because that's where the false accusation flew uh, from those who were accusing him. He says, you know, God chose to give the law uh, that you don't hold, by the way, he says, but God chose to give the law through Moses. And, and Moses' life is broken down into three, it's very interesting, three 40-year segments. So uh, in Egypt, the first 40 years of Moses' life, you know that, that when, um, when Pharaoh declared that the firstborn children be killed, uh, what happened with Moses, he was rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. So he, he was raised in Egypt under the education of Egypt, under the influence of Egyptian culture, and God was preparing God was preparing a leader for Israel in Egypt. And that was his point. He's saying, listen, you you think that everything about God is limited to Israel? No, God prepared a leader for the people of God in a, a heathen place in Egypt. God had prepared him for 40 years. He was trained and raised. And yet at his 40th year, he decided to make his way to his Israelite brethren. And you know the story. He's He's seeing the oppression of his people and he strikes down an Egyptian 
And the very next day, he comes upon two Israelite folks, two Hebrews who are battling with each other. And he, he says, hey, brothers, what are you doing here? Let's, let's have peace. And the one says, what, do you want to kill me too, like you killed the Egyptian? And with that, Moses fled. He fled into the wilderness for 40 years, where he had married and had two sons. And then he encountered God at the burning bush. What's the story? Why is the burning bush so important? Because he encountered the living God through that burning bush, but because also of the fact that he had to take his sandals off. The ground where he was was holy ground. And it wasn't Israelite ground. He was out there. He was out apart. He was in Midian. Holy ground in Midian? How is that possible? Well, it's possible because God himself is holy and God was meeting Moses and commissioning Moses in a place that they considered worthless. In the wilderness, the last 40-year site that we see of Moses, 40 years of wandering, 40 years of, of leading a people who, quite frankly, didn't want to be led in any way. God met with Moses, as I mentioned earlier, on Sinai and gave the law. And what are the people of God doing? While Moses is meeting with God, the people are rejecting God. They're turning away. They don't want anything to do with God. They, they want to worship the work of their hands. So they, they, they make this idol and they're, they're dancing and worshiping and carrying on in worship to something made by their own hands. What does that say? But that we love by nature to worship ourselves. Worship the work of our hands. Until God redeems our heart and our mind, we, we, we just love to see what we have done and, and look at our works and look at the things that we have done. And so, so Stephen artfully and skillfully helps them to see that even Moses was rejected. And Moses very clearly was a type of Christ because he, like Christ, would be the ones to, to lead the people to the promised land. And unlike Christ, or Christ leads us actually into the promised land. We all know that Moses wasn't able to go in, but he is a type of Christ. He is a, a redeemer type. And in fact, Moses says to his Israelites, he said, hey, God is going to raise up someone like me to redeem you and restore you. And what is Israel's response to Moses? After parting the Red Sea, after leading them in the wilderness, after doing the, the helping to do the, the mighty works of God in Egypt and lead his people out, how do they respond? They reject him. See, the, the rebellious attitudes of Joseph's brothers, the patriarchs themselves, the rebellious rejection of a leader like Moses, he's building his argumentation, and now he's saying, hey, listen, you, you rejected the very Son of God. Why do you think, why do you think that you, ha- you are holy? You have, you have rejected the one that God has sent to make you holy by his one-time sacrifice, and you have rejected him there. He, he finishes with his argumentation related to the temple in verses 44 through 50. He, he illustrates that God was with Israel in their wanderings, and God so wanted to be among the people that he instituted a tabernacle, a place, a, a temporary dwelling place for the Spirit of the Lord. And if you recall from your Old Testament history, the tabernacle was placed in the middle of the camp of the 12 tribes. So all, all of the 12 tribes would, would be around the tabernacle because, because God himself was there, his Spirit was there, and, and he wanted to dwell in and among the people people of God. And so he he placed himself right in the middle of the camp. Under Solomon, he says the the temple was made. David asked for a temple to be made, but, but Solomon was the one who actually was able to build the temple. But as beautiful as the temple was, as much as God had ordained the, the temple to be built, he had specific directions for it. It was at best temporary. It was at best temporary because with the coming of Christ, the days of the temple were drawing to a close. 
Because all that the temple represented, the making of blood sacrifices uh, through animals, the priestly intercession, going into the Holy of Holies to make intercession for the sins of the people, all of that, what was it? It was all just this big arrow that was pointing forward to the ultimate Redeemer that was coming, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Therefore, when Jesus died, remember what happened on the day of his crucifixion? The temple curtain was torn into two, signifying that we no longer need the animal sacrifice. We no longer need the priest to find our direct access to God. We go to God through Jesus Christ because he is God. No longer do we need a sacrifice. Jesus was the once and for all time sacrifice. In fact, when he completed his sacrifice, it says he sat down at the right hand of God. It was finished. It was over. There was no more need for sacrifices. Jesus had come. He was the fulfillment of the temple. He was the fulfillment of the law. All we need is Jesus. That's what he said. Now, he gets to the end of this, this history, trying to draw their eyes and their hearts to the fact that, that in and of themselves, they have absolutely nothing. And I don't know if he sensed their response. We don't have, we don't have the record of how they were uh, necessarily responding prior to what he says next, but, but he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, listen to these words. I mean, I don't think you could get more clear than these words. We're going to read verses 51 to 53, just three short verses. This is how he ends the sermon, filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, verse 51, you stiff-necked people. Sounds like some words Moses said often. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. (laughs) Well, if they weren't awake before, they definitely were awake now. And we'll read in a moment how they murderously responded to what he said. It's, it's interesting, the irony here, that they are the ones who accuse Stephen of saying, hey, you don't, you don't, you don't honor the law, you don't honor Moses, when in fact they were the very ones who did not honor the law at all. They didn't listen to Moses, they didn't follow Moses, they didn't follow Jesus, they didn't follow anyone except themselves. And so he said, you are stiff-necked. What does it mean to have a stiff neck? Does it mean you did work the day before? Well, that is one meaning of a stiff neck. But what he means here is this upper, like nobody's going to get through to me. I know who I am, a stiff neck, unchangeable, unwilling to be bent. Someone who is so determined in their own efforts that they are not movable by the spirit of They're they're resisting the spirit of God. They are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in their hearts and ears. I mean, he's choosing his words carefully because we know that, that they were adhering to the outward form of circumcision in a physical way. But he says, your hearts are dead. Your hearts are cold. They've not been made alive by the spirit of God. You always resist the Holy Spirit. This was a bold statement. I mean, they knew that the Holy Spirit was God himself. And he's saying, you resist God all the time. They follow in the pattern of their unbelieving fathers. And so as he's concluding his his sermon, and as he lets it fly, again, you might think, wow, he seems kind of angry here. I remind you, he was under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit speaks truth Even when the truth may be painful, yet he's speaking a scathing yet accurate pronouncement by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me try, before we look at the death of Stephen, let me try to offer some thoughts what this might mean for us, uh, for you and me today. 
And one way that we can do that is by taking a step back from the text and just ask this question. What, what does this text reveal to us about God? What is this recitation of Israel's history? What does it tell us about the nature and the character of God? I, I think it tells us, among other things, at least two things. It, it tells us that God is gracious and he deals with people graciously. He was patient and long-suffering with Israel. He would, he would pour out blessing on Israel. And what would happen with Israel is they would get so caught up in the blessings that they would forget about God. And then they would dive deep long into sin and, and just yield themselves fully to sin and idol worship and the worship of the nations and all kinds of things. And, and God would rebuke them in his love in his kindness, in his care. And they would repent and turn back to him and then the cycle would repeat. And, and so we see this pattern of God's gracious dealing with people who are broken, like you and me. God is a gracious Lord. You know, last Sunday at the conclusion of the service, there are people who are coming down for healing and there are people who are coming down because of sins in their, in their body and, and things that they just need to repent of. And you know what I say to that? Praise the Lord because God is a merciful God. He forgives and he restores and he takes the mess of Jeremy Bell. He takes the mess of everyone who turns to him in faith and who seeks forgiveness at the throne of Christ. And he grants not only forgiveness, but grace then to live. And when we fall, he, he gives us the grace to get up again and keep moving. And, and we see that grace in Israel's story, that he is long-suffering and patient. And so I just I want to encourage you today, this morning, that, that that's who God is. That he is a patient and long-suffering God. And this morning, if you're struggling with certain kinds of sins or, or maybe you're, you're just not approaching the Lord wholeheartedly, you know what I mean by that. You're, you're holding back. I, I remind you again to fall on your face before God and, and just come to him because he is a merciful and gracious Lord. He is good and he restores and he, he helps us. That's why he gives us the Holy Spirit. It's, it's the grace of God when you fall under repentance. Truly, it is the grace of God to you because he's trying to take away death from you and give you himself, which is life. So let's embrace together the Holy Spirit of God. He is good and he is a gracious Lord. That is not the only thing, however, that we see of the character and nature of God in the Old Testament story. Um, what's true is that we can be in proximity to God and completely, completely miss him. That we can be in proximity to God and be completely lost in our way, on our way to an eternity in hell. It doesn't matter if you've gone to church your entire lives. You can be in proximity to God and not know God at all. These were the these were the religious leaders that he's saying these two these things to. I mean, these were the people who who were supposed to be the most close to God, and yet they were far, far away. How how did that happen? How how did people miss God so much? Well, I think one of the themes is uh, because it's said twice in they, they loved the work of their hands. What, what's another way to say that? I mean, you might think, well, I don't make things, so I'm, I'm not so good with my hands. Well, it's, it's not saying actual physical production. It's like the pride of our accomplishments. This can even be spiritual. We can think, hey, I'm acceptable to God uh, because I do good things. I'm, I'm a good I'm a good Samaritan. If, if someone's waiting to turn, I, I, I stop early and I, I wave them out and I let them go and, and I give to the church and I, I do all kinds of good things. I love my neighbors. Well, praise God that you do those things. But if you're not rooted and founded in Jesus Christ, they amount to absolutely nothing spiritually. How can these people be so close in one sense to God I mean, they, they walked around with phylacteries on their head. The words of God literally written, and they, they wanted them so close to their mind, they would put them in wooden boxes and, and wear them on their heads. How could they miss it? Because they always resisted the Holy Spirit. They resisted the Holy Spirit. 
And, and brothers and sisters, this morning, I, I say to you, whether you know Christ as your Savior, I say don't resist the Holy Spirit. And, and if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, uh, this is the gospel, that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came into this world. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time. He came into this world and lived a perfect life, and he died a sinner's death, taking upon himself the sins of everyone who would ever believe, so that by faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you may be born again. Those are the words of God. That is the gospel. And if you are founded on that, your eternity is bright and hopeful, and you can have a face like the face of Stephen, even in the midst of hard times. But if you do not, if you do not respond to the Holy Spirit's call to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you know what is said of you? And I say this with all love. You stiff-necked person. You resist the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has come that you might not resist him, but receive the grace of the Lord. And dear friends, I, I fear that there, there can be people in the church, in God's church, that are always near to him, but never quite with him. And I just want to ask you this morning to be faithful to this text. Do you know the forgiveness of Christ? Do you know the love of Jesus Christ in your heart? Do you, do you, when you look at your life and you see the sins that you've committed, do you know this morning that they are forgiven? Do you know where you would spend all of eternity and why? Because this text tells us that we can live around religiosity. We can go to church every week. We can even give and do all kinds of good things. But if we don't know Jesus, we have nothing. And if we do know Jesus, we have everything which now is what we see as I conclude with the final witness of Stephen. After this powerful sermon, um, you might think that God by his spirit was moving in the hearts of those who were there, uh, but in fact, the heart of Satan is on display here. Look at verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. They were filled with rage at the preaching of the truth. Rather than respond and be cut to the heart and respond like some had done at the end of chapter 2 after Peter's sermon, they were, they were all the more agitated and they were filled with rage toward him. I don't know if you've been around someone who's been filled with rage. Rage. I don't want to be around someone who's filled with rage. They, they lost whatever semblance of self-control they had previously had, and they could no longer hear another word. They, they stopped their ears, and they yelled at the top of their lungs so that it would drown out the words that he was saying. He was speaking such powerful truth by the Holy Spirit. They were so resistant to the truth of the Holy Spirit that they, they could no longer stand it. And in a great rage... They, they came upon him and grabbed him and dragged him out of the city to stone him. And I, I, I recognize we have children here, and I'll be careful, but just, just to say that the stoning of someone to death was uh, 
a most gruesome way uh, to die, as you can imagine. Stones coming to break bones and, and, and break someone, literally break them down. And here is Stephen. And what is the Lord doing for Stephen in this moment? I, I just am amazed at how God is so kind to Stephen in the midst of calling him to endure this suffering. Because while undoubtedly he surely felt the blows as the rocks are being thrown at him, he is also consumed with something else. I don't see a record here of, of Peter, or excuse me, Stephen just um, being consumed by the physical violence that's happening to him. What I see him being consumed with is Christ himself. And as, as Stephen is receiving blow after blow, what, what does he see? He sees a vision. He sees God himself. In glory, Jesus Christ standing. That's interesting, by the way. One of the commentators uh, that I read this week on this passage said, you know, typically we hear about Christ being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why would he be standing? And he, he just thought, he said, you know, I don't have any scripture to back me up here, but he said, I wonder if Jesus was standing to welcome his new son. I mention that because this is a picture of, on one hand, grotesque brutality by the works of Satan himself. On the other hand, glory unthinkable, as Stephen now is mirroring the very words of Christ at the cross. Lord, don't hold this against them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, this man was walking with Christ in the very hour of his death. And nothing, he knew, nothing could separate him from the love of Christ. That's what, that's what the Apostle Paul says when he says this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. No stoning, no death, nothing. In our culture, today is Reformation Day, right? This is the day when we remember the Reformation that God ordained to reform the church. We celebrate Reformation Day and and men like Martin Luther and others that God used to reform the church such that we would go back to the Bible. This is Reformation Day uh, for the people of God. For, For the people of uh, the world, this is another day. It's a, it's a day when we're, we're transfixed by horror and death. And I, I just, I can't believe the imagery that I see when I drive by some houses, um, in our neighborhoods, uh, like the images of death that we just seem to be gravitating toward. And, and I don't understand why, but I do see why we have this great fear of death, don't we? So much uh, a transfixation with it, but, but we, we fear it so badly. Stephen and his account is given to us to communicate something to us. That in the midst of even the worst possible death that you could experience, and, and un- until the Lord comes, we will all experience death. Regardless of the circumstances, for his dear people, God takes care of them. In our last moments, God is gracious. God will not abandon us. God will be with us. In fact, the psalmist says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So I I want to draw our time to a close. I want to invite the worship team to join me back on the stage. What was the effect ultimately of Stephen's death? 
Well, we'll hear about this in coming weeks. It profoundly affected Saul, who would soon turn into the Apostle Paul. He's the the main actor in the storyline of Acts, so it, it deeply makes an impression upon him. Uh, great persecution actually came to the church uh, with his death, and, and we know that the, the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs, those who have gone before us. And so there was great persecution that came. But notice this as well. This is a turning point in the book of Acts. All that we've been studying and looking about so far has been within the context of Jerusalem. But this is an unstoppable gospel. It can't be contained by any temple or any city or any people. And and now the gospel in chapter 8 and on is going forward into Gentile territory and it's conquering one heart after the next as God is spreading his gospel from this little place in Judea to the four corners of the globe. And it starts here. It starts with the death of a precious saint who offers truth. He doesn't back down from truth in front of the council, in front of the people who could kill him. He knew that. He knew where this was going. He still spoke truth. And he was faithful, and God never let him go. So how do we end? How do we bring this all together? How can we make sure we're not trapped in religiosity doing good works and thinking that through those good works we can, we can make ourselves acceptable before God, we, what, do, what do we do? We turn our eyes to Jesus. What do we do when we fear the end coming and, and fear even the day that we might perish? Uh, what do we do? We put our eyes on Jesus. And I hope this closing song just encourages you and strengthens you. So can you stand with me? We're going to sing a, a meditative song. A song that I hope captures the essence of what we've been talking about this morning because we can be like Israel. We can lose focus. We can, we can miss Christ. We can be around Christ for a long time but, but never actually turn to him. And like these folks, we too can miss him. And so we're going to sing, Lord, give us, give us Jesus in the morning, in the noonday, in the night, and even when we come to die. Lord, give us Jesus. Father, we pray that in these moments as we are sobered by this text, but also encouraged at your mercy that you display in this text. We pray for Jesus, that, that we might have more of him, that you would create a hunger in our hearts to, to enjoy him more day by day, that tomorrow morning when we rise, we would, we would long for him, we would be satisfied in him, that he would be our portion and we would be happy in him. And so we say, Lord, give us Jesus. Clear away the dark and the doubt And give us Jesus. He is who we want. And he is who we need.